Hello, and welcome to Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed College thesis process and experience. I'm your host and producer, Albert Corellis, and today I'll be talking with Reed math major Erica Becerra about her thesis on invariance on knots. Why don't you introduce yourself, Erica? Hello, I'm Erica. I use she or pronouns. I'm from Texas. What was the title of your thesis? Putting Pants on Knots, and my advisor was Nick Davidson. So I should talk about what knots are first. So I think when, mo- when, when you say the word knots, most people will think of like their shoelaces and that, and that being a knot. Yeah, like a thing you tie. But for a mathematician, that isn't really a knot. Essentially what mathematicians are concerned with are basically if you take a loop, so for instance just a hair tie, and you take the two ends, disconnect them, twist it around each other as much as you like, or not twist it at all, and then connect the ends back up. That's a knot. So it's just some sort of loop that's kind of connected around itself and twisted around itself. And the big question in knot theory is, in what ways are two knots similar? So mathematicians consider the simple loop as a knot. That's called the unknot. Yeah, you can twist it around and maneuver it. I could imagine taking like a hair tie and then kind of twisting it over itself to make a figure eight shape. Yeah, but for mathematicians, it's still the same knot because you can just untwist it back. However, if you disconnect it and kind of loop it around itself and connect the ends back up, you can't undo it without cutting it or disconnecting any parts of it. You'd have to do something more than just like moving the parts around. Yeah, so if you're given just some knot, one question is, can you untangle this into another knot, or can you untangle it completely until you get the unknot? So, like, if you think of our figure eight hair tie, you can just untwist that and it's back to the unknot. Yeah. But you could imagine you could have a more complicated shape than just the figure eight. Yeah, because you could get some configuration that looks heinously convoluted. And you could untwist it back into the unknot. But you might not know. And so, the thing to try is to try and kind of unloop it, but that turns out to be very hard. And there are algorithms that attempt to unknot a knot into something less complicated, but it is very impractical. And so what knot theorists have come up with is, in a way to try to identify knots, is to make invariance of knots, which is essentially something that doesn't change with respect to how you move the knot around. Can we talk about crossings for a second? Yeah, if you look at a knot straight on, two strands will kind of intersect at, at yeah, some place. Yeah, they'll pass over one another. Yeah. So you can imagine, like, back to our twisted figure eight hair tie, there's one crossing when it's in its figure eight, but you can, like, untwist it and go to zero crossings, where the knot never has to cross over itself. In that case, what we call the projection of the knot has one crossing in the figure eight case, but the minimum number of crossings is zero because you can just untwist it and get the unknot. The minimum crossing number is what mathematicians are most concerned with. But so taking us back to the idea of an invariant, the number of crossings can change just by transforming the knot. Yeah. The minimum number of crossings does not change. Yeah. Like, that's an invariant. Yeah, so that that is an invariant. And it's an invariant that's hard to compute. Mathematicians are looking for very easily computable variants. And so one invariant is called the Jones polynomial, which essentially you take a knot and you do you do a bunch of things to it and now it pops a polynomial, which is just a sum of variables to raise to some power. What is shown about the Jones polynomial is that no matter how you twist up your knot, the Jones polynomial will stay the same. But your thesis is not on the Jones polynomial. No, it is on covalent homology, which is the title of the famous paper is that it is a categorification of the Jones polynomial. Now, categorification is a word that is fun to say and also requires a bit of unpacking. But essentially, the Jones polynomial is pretty good. Because it's a way to actually like identify a knot. You can go as this Jones polynomial yeah. and like concretely say a thing about it. Yeah. The one thing is that even though any projection of a knot will have the same Jones polynomial, who 
different knots can have the same Jones polynomial. Some five crossing knots have the same Jones polynomial or six crossing knots that have the same Jones polynomial as 10 crossing knots. If two knots have the same Jones polynomial, then you don't necessarily know that they're the same knot. But if they have different Jones polynomials, you can be sure that they're not the same knot. Yes. And so one thing that mathematicians look for is to refine invariants that they have created. And so a very easy invariant is tricolorability, which is a very coarse invariant in that it splits knots into two categories, tricolorable and not tricolorable. And so the trifold knot is tricolorable, however the unknot is not. And because tricolorability is an invariant and they're in different tricolorability categories. You know that they're not the same knot. Yeah. And so when we say we're categorifying the Jones polynomial, what we are doing is A, trying to refine our invariant that we have. Refining an invariant would mean making it so that fewer knots share the same invariant? Yes. Well, okay, so one thing about cohomology is that it is the unknot detector, which I guess helps differentiate between the unknot and any other knot. What do you mean by the unknot detector? So if something has the Kovanov, has Kovanov homology of the unknot, then it must be the unknot. A, a very simple example of categorification is in, in counting sheep. <laughs> if you have two fields and you want to see if they're the same number of sheep, one thing you can do is just count the number of sheep. By doing that, you're attributing a number to each field, and that number tells you the number of sheep. And if they're an equal number, then you know you have the same number of yeah, sheep in each field. That makes sense. Another thing you can do is categorify that method by lining all of the sheep up along the fence. And if if there's no extra sheep on one side, yeah. you don't, haven't necessarily counted them. You're just lining them up. And you get that there's a difference at the end, then you know if they have the same number or not the same number. You're matching one sheep on one side to one sheep on the other side. And so categorification attempts to try to show things are similar by looking at the relation of the two rather than showing some particular property is the same of the two. Why that can be important is because it can be easier to show that there exists some relationship between two things rather than showing some individual property of each of them because we might not know a whole lot about the individual things, but we know that it's related to this other thing and we can kind of show that because it's related to this other thing, something holds. And so in Kovanov homology, we're relating it to a chain complex, which is a, a more categorical structure. The reason why the Jones polynomial isn't that great is because the polynomials aren't that complicated of a structure, and so we lose a bit of information about the knot as we turn it into the Jones polynomial, which is why we get that some knots have the same Jones polynomial, because we're just losing information about the knot, whereas chain complexes can hold more information about the knot. When you encode a knot into the chain complex, or you encode the knot's crossings into the chain complex, you can keep more of the original knot than if yeah. you encode it into a polynomial. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it gives us more information. There's some pretty simple examples of where the Jones polynomial fails to differentiate between knots that, for the most part, Kovanov homology seems to have a much greater differentiating power. So we've talked a lot about knots. Mm -hmm. Pants. Pants seem like a very interesting thing to throw into the title of your thesis. Yeah, the reason why it's pants on knots is because you kind of are putting these pants on knots. When you look at the crossings and you compute the Jones polynomial or code of homology, you kind of deconstruct the knot and you get a bunch of unknots. Just a bunch of little loops. Just a bunch of little loops. And you can kind of connect them all via what are called cobordisms, but sometimes colloquially called pants. Or a particular cobordism, it's called the pants because it does look like a pair of pants. Using these cobordisms... Mikhail Kovanov created a chain complex, and once you have the chain complex, you do homology on it, which is where the homology part comes in. And homology is a tool topologists use to create invariants. So we've learned quite a bit about why Mikhail Kovanov is interested in Kovanov homology. Why are you interested in Kovanov homology? Um, 
I don't know. <laughs> I I've liked math a lot, so I've just found myself doing math a lot, and I. I've done the math major. I really have enjoyed the courses a lot. Over the summer between my junior and senior year, I did some research with this group called Polymath, and there are a variety of projects to work on. And I think going into it, I was very into like number theory and abstract algebra and things like that. And for some reason, at the time, convinced those those were things I wanted to do. However, one of the projects was a not theory project. And I was like, for some reason, I felt on that particular day that, no, I'm going to try something different just to see some other way of mathematics. And I ended up really liking the work I did in not theory. And I think one reason that I found it interesting is that not theory, a lot of the mathematics from like early not theory is very, it's jerry-rigged. It's just like a whole bunch of weird ways of doing things. You're using mathematic techniques like homologies that are borrowed from other fields. Yeah, and you're using them in a slightly different way than you're like, you're supposed to. I found it kind of funny. As I asked around for people who would want to do a not theory thesis and Nick Davidson was quite game because Nick Davidson's work is tangential to not theory. And so Nick suggested I look at Kovanov homology. And as I was beginning to look at Kovanov homology, it was interesting how like it began to feel much more put together as a, a field of mathematics. I mean, the Kovanov homology paper came out in like 2000. It's quite recent stuff. As I began learning about my thesis, I had to do a lot of like groundwork because I didn't know what homology was. I knew about knot theory, but I, didn't, I still was learning about it. So I only spent a summer learning about it. And it felt like real deal mathematics. And like, not to say that any math is less than any, but it felt like, you know, the kind of things that the majority of the mathematics community was interested in. It definitely had that not theory flair of just being slightly jerry-rigged, but also that like... You're putting a lot of powerful pieces of math together, even though they're hanging together a little more jankily than maybe they were originally intended to. Y yes, yeah, that is a, a good way of phrasing it. One of the papers that was the big kind of inspiration for the thesis was not Mikhail Kovanov's original paper, but Dror Bonartan's paper on Kovanov homology because it gives a slightly simpler account of it it was relatively straightforward to read once I figured out what was going. And by relatively straightforward, it means it, it took me three months to, <laughs> to actually understand the entirety of the paper. There were a couple points in the paper where I really didn't know what was going on. And I, when I showed Nick at first, Nick didn't know what was going on either. When you're trying to understand something from a textbook, then you, you know, you're in a class, the professor knows exactly what's going on. Yeah. But neither of us knew what was going <laughs> on. And so it took us like a whole hour to figure out two sentences in this 50 page paper. There were a couple moments like that where we would read things and I would be stuck on it and Nick would be like, huh, I don't understand how this works too. And we'd have to work through it somewhat together. Nick kind of showing the way of like how to get through the this problem. And I would follow along and try to hint towards things, or at the very least just follow along. Basically, all I did was write about Kovanov homology and TQFTs for 50 pages. I didn't really do a whole lot in terms of like trying to do new things, mainly because there was so much to understand. And also, it seems for a lot of math theses, the goal is more so expository than um, cutting edge research because the cutting edge research in mathematics is five years away at the end of a PhD most of the time. The base expectation is that you learn some mathematics that, that builds on what you've done at Reed and be able to explain it coherently is the, the kind of the goal, I think, of a math thesis. My advisor, Nick, gave me like, I'm going to say required encryptations because it was pretty, pretty relaxed, but it was like, 
here's a thesis log. You should fill something out of this every week. It was mainly just to keep me doing things every week and have something written and have something. Even like the first week I started working on my thesis, I had like a page of something written. One of the main things was to make a, a document that's approachable for someone who is maybe doesn't know as much about homology or knots or categorification. Because I did do a lot of reading outside of the one paper to actually understand what was going on. So yeah, during the first couple months, it was mostly me looking through textbooks about knot theory and homology um, and a little bit about category theory to kind of understand what these tools are built upon. More or less felt like I was taking a class about some of these things, just like looking through the textbook, working through some of the examples. But also I was writing up a little bit about these tools every week. All of that writing ended up in the thesis. And then second semester, I kind of came up with a plan for getting particular chapters done. I wanted most theses to have three chapters. And I had a pretty good idea of how to set up the three chapters. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to actually finish some of these chapters and like come up with some rough drafts. I was like, I'm going to come up with my own deadlines. And I didn't hit them perfectly, but they were very helpful to be like, helped force me to get some things done. Because that's the other thing. It feels like you, you can just keep going with your thesis. You can just keep writing more and more and more. But at some point, you just have to... Yeah, someday you got to turn it in. Yeah. What did you get out of this experience that you think will be useful to you in the future? I, I, I have ambitions to go to grad school for mathematics. And I think I have a better understanding now of how higher level mathematics is done, I feel like I can look at other math papers and feel more confident in being like, either I can understand it or B, I have an understanding of how to get to a place to be able to understand this because I understand how... You've developed better tools for like picking a paper apart. Yeah, and just knowing how mathematicians do things. Yeah. There's certain words that you know and you can know the definition of them, but you might not understand like the full scope of them. Yeah. Like how they're how they're used in mathematics and like what they're intended use or like why people care about them. Yeah, but I think I guess more generally because the thesis was largely my own. Although I had to do a thesis log every week, it was mostly me directing where to put my interest in like learning about things, and so it gave me I guess a bit of confidence in being able to be like, okay, I can learn about things not necessarily on my own, but just like because you were interested in them, not because like a class brought them to you. Yeah, attention. more generally, I feel more capable into delving into something that I don't know hardly anything about. Coercion. The topological quantum field theory. Pants. Wait, we can use that math. TQFT. Okay, it's pissed out for a second. Do you have any advice for future thesising seniors, current read students, would-be mathematicians? I guess thesis particularly do a little bit. The, the thesis, it's a lot of work, but to me, it mostly just felt like the same amount of work as a class, or maybe a little bit more than a class, and I just had to compile all of the work I did at the end. And I did a lot of that compilation as I went along. At the end, I did have to do a good bit of synthesis of all of that and then making it into one document. And that is a, certainly something that I hadn't done a whole lot before with mathematics, but do a lot your first semester, because it'll make the, the next semester afterwards easier. I heard lots of horror stories of people leaving it to the second semester, and they get it done, but it does not seem like a... A pleasant experience. Yeah. You will inevitably procrastinate and not do as much as you want. It can feel like an unending project, but at some point you have to finish it. And so do lots, yeah. I'm like debating whether or not I want to say, try and look for an advisor who will be very supportive, because you don't really get to pick your advisor, uh, yeah, although you don't get to pick your advisor for most departments, you can at the very least choose a preference of some. And I think it's definitely very helpful to have an advisor who's very supportive about your topic and is a very supportive about 
what you're doing because having Nick as my advisor, he was always very cheerful and excited to answer any of my questions. And that was very helpful. And when I was freaking out about thesis every now and then, it was always helpful to have Nick being like, oh, you've been doing, you're doing totally fine. Encouragement is important. You will run into lots of issues formatting things. Yeah. Um, yeah, doing your thesis, you will run into lots of formatting issues. So be prepared. They will take time. Well, especially because you did a math thesis. I'm, I imagine you spent a ton of time in like law tech doing yeah, terrible if, things. If you're doing law tech, it, yeah, I had to do lots of diagrams and things like that. For, for those unfamiliar, LaTeX is a software for, for laying out documents that's especially popular in math and, and the sciences because you can put in all sorts of like math symbols and equations and things. Yeah, and so I might probably not as important with, or no, it still is important with, the, you know, there's a particular template you have to follow if you use Word. And so I think everyone will run into formatting issues and get those figured out ASAP. Learn your formatting software. Yes. Because if you get those figured out, you won't get an angry email from the library being like, your formatting's wrong. If you do not submit, you will not graduate. That's a scary email to get. I got one email because my margins were like slightly off. Oh, heaven forbid. And so I had to go back in and fix that because I did a lot of copying of headers into things mm -hmm. in my latex document. I ended up copying a margins adjustment thing into the thesis template, which adjusted the margins oh, of the thesis, goodness. which... The library wasn't going to have any of that. Nope, not at all. So be careful with copying things into the thesis template, especially if it's like above the, you know, in the like the header section where you put all your fun functions and import your packages and whatnot. Do you have any people you'd like to thank or recognize before we close out the episode? Um, Probably Nick Davidson. Just yeah. Nick Davidson was quite... A, a great thesis advisor and I enjoyed doing the thesis a lot with him so thanks so much for being on the podcast thank you for having me on thanks so much for sitting down with me Erica editing this episode was quite the doozy I had over an hour of talking with Erica about all the math things and I did my best to cut it down I hope I did the math justice I'm sure you'll let me know if I didn't I hope you'll join us again to hear more from students and alumni about what it means to burn your draft if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, check out our Twitter and Facebook pages, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced, hosted, and edited by me, Reed student Albert Corellis. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from Joe Janiga. Our project manager is Nate Martin, staff member in class of 2016. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020 and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlick and Lillian Pham. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.